Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Better Off, we've got CEO and co-founder of Betterment, John Stein. And John is fired up about fiduciary. The reason this is a big issue for us is that we believe every American has the right to unconflicted financial advice. I built a company around that idea that everyone should get fiduciary unconflicted advice to help them make the best possible decisions and maximize their money. All that and more coming up on the Better Off Podcast. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. Hey, you know, this is the show where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and life. Well, boy, have we got a show for you today. We've got the CEO and co-founder of Betterment, John Stein, and John is totally fired up about the fiduciary issue, which I love. That's going to be a theme here. I told you we're going to be talking about this idea of putting your interests first. That's an important concept on Better Off. You may have noticed in your feed that you got a little extra this week. I gave you a bonus episode. That is the bonus call of the week. We are now dropping that on Tuesdays. If you would like to ask us a question, just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. You can also tweet at us at Jill on Money, hashtag better off. Okay, let's get into this. Let's talk to John Stein right now. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, this is a first. Uh, We are going to have our sponsor's CEO as the interview segment of the show. So this is the pandering part of the program. We are joined by John Stein, the CEO and co-founder of Betterment. And uh, John, when did we first meet? A couple years ago? I think that's right. Uh, I think we met at a conference. Yeah, I think so, too. And we fell in love immediately, (laughs) much to the chagrin of our significant others. So you know how we start the show off, man. You know what happens. I got to ask you, you ready? Your best financial decision, money decision ever. Easy. It was starting Betterment. It was a long process, let me tell you, leading up to should I do this? Is, Is this the right thing? And I heard the advice from a lot of people that this was a crazy idea. It would never work. Don't do it. Now we've changed the entire industry, right? Everyone is running after us. So clearly it's, it's worked out pretty well. I'll say. By the way, I will say one of the things that made me like kind of fall in love with you is that there were a lot of people who were in this space, this financial technology space, and I would meet them and I'd say, you're a robo-advisor. And they're like, no, we're not. And the first thing you said is, oh, yeah, I am. And you were like, <laughs> kind of owned it, right? Well, you know, it's a good handle for what we do. It, it helps to differentiate in the consumer's mind what, what is this new thing and why is it different from the models that have come before? And when you hear those kinds of things, you just want to latch on to it. Why would you start this company? You could, there are like easier ways to make money, by the way. You know, you know my story. I bet some of your listeners know my story at this point. But I was a consultant to banks for many years. And in that time, I used to say my job was helping the banks make more money. It wasn't a very fulfilling role. That's like very much like the Red Cross. <laughs> I mean, really, it's so altruistic right, of you. It's so, it's so altruistic. I, I knew that it wasn't fulfilling, uh, but I was learning so much about how the banks work and how they think. And I saw again and again that they weren't designing products for customers. They were designing them for whatever the regulatory regime was or whatever made the most profits for them. They weren't thinking about their customers. At the same time, I was investing on my own. I had seven different brokerage accounts with everybody who's out there, right? 
And I was so frustrated that I knew what I should be doing. I had a CFA. I had an economics degree and so on. I knew what I should be doing. None of these firms made it easy for me. And I thought, if I'm having trouble with this, and I know these firms aren't going to innovate because I'm working with all of them you know, in, in my day job, I bet everyone else out there is having the same trouble that I am, just doing the right thing with their money. And there should be an obvious best answer to the question, what should I do with my money? It should be managed in an intelligent way for me. And I knew that the company, the incumbents weren't going to build it because they didn't have the right incentives to build it. The industry was structured wrong. So I envisioned this advisor that would be the first ever mass market advice platform. There have been advisors for years, right? There have always been advisors um, uh, to the very wealthy uh, and fiduciary good advisors uh, to, to those folks. And there have been brokers and salespeople to sell products to everybody else. But the system wasn't designed to give advice to everyone. And that was a major gap because as we're living longer, as, as the financial world becomes more and more complex, we have more decisions to make, we need more advice, so there's huge demand for advice and, and, and helping people make good decisions and helping people do the right thing with their money every time, all the time. I knew that that wasn't going to come from the industry as it was. It wasn't going to come from the incumbents. As you got into this and you created this business, what did you learn about the business itself that was surprising to you? As we have grown. We started out thinking this is going to be uh, a great model for people with $100,000, $10,000. We're just going to make it really accessible to them to do the smart things. And as we have grown, we have found people with more and more sophisticated financial situations saying, this is a no-brainer. This is what I should be doing. And we have, over time, modified our, our algorithms, made it more, you know, better and better for them. And I feel like the large wealth management firms are really shaking in their boots now. Some of them are saying, oh, there's no way that this could ever come and, 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 and disrupt our business. But they don't do that much more than we do, right? They just put a, they just put a, a, a fancy sheen on it. In uh, fact, uh, when, I, when I have met with some people and they hear about the podcast and they'll, I say, you know, you know, Betterment's the sponsor of the podcast. And one executive from a large financial services company said to me, those guys aren't going to survive. We're going to just eat their lunch because we'll just build our own. And everybody wants a human touch. And we don't buy the concept that people are willing to do financial advice in this way. And what's your answer to that? Yeah, there's a lot of this, oh, it'll never, it'll never impact us. That email's <laughs> never going to work. That ele- that trading online is really, ne- that's what it reminded me actually in the moment. It reminded me of when uh, my dad came home one day. My dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. And he came home one day and he's like, look at this thing. This is like we have a computer. We're matching trades with a computer. It's so cool. And uh, his colleagues were like, mm. That's not going to happen. That people want to go to a specialist. They want to talk right. to the guy. And there's just so many iterations of this. So what is it that they're missing? Or are they just blowing smoke up their own you-know-whats? Yeah, that, that's what it is. I mean, people don't see the future very often. When you've got a big incumbent business and you've got a million clients and you're serving them, you don't see how, how things are changing, right? It's hard for you. I've worked in those companies. I understand how decisions are made. They're too big to, to turn the ship. It's, it's, it's too hard for them. 
and uh, and they don't see where we're going. We've already got people who will talk to you on the phone. We've got CFPs. We've got great human advice. We've always combined the best people and the best technology. Our technology is decades ahead of where the rest of the, the incumbents are. And our business model is different. We are an advisor first and foremost. All the big incumbents in the industry are either brokers or mutual fund companies, and they're all trying to sell you something. Do you think that it's um, the model is hard in essentially because uh, when regular people think about, I get financial advice, they don't think I have to write a check every year to get that advice, right? So I've got a million bucks. Let's just pretend I've got a big wirehouse account, and I pay $10,000 a year. I don't think that about writing a check for $10,000 a year gets sucked out of my account. Do you think that we are close to a period of time where essentially the cost of your money management is zero, but but you will have to cut a check? I think it's we're like in a time where, uh, let's say I'm going to use the analogy of car companies. Everyone right now is driving around in a late model sedan that's from the 1980s and it's a real gas guzzler and it's got terrible performance and it's in the shop every other week. And we just take it for granted because those are the only cars that are on the market. Everyone thinks that's the way it has to be. We are a brand new, shiny Tesla, right? We are the future. And people are like, wow, I don't have to actually take my car into the shop all the time. I don't have to. It doesn't have to be that expensive. But the incumbents have really uh, made it hard for new entrants to get in, right? There's a lot of barriers to entry in this space. Instead of, you know, you paying for gas at the pump, they're just sucking it directly out of your bank account. So people are not aware. They know that things maybe could be better and that this is that their, their financial management is a frustration, but they're not sure how it could be better because the incumbents have really hit all the, all the problems. Our goal as a company is to wake people up to the fact that they're not getting what they deserve. They're not getting everything that's rightfully theirs. And so we are here to get every American everything that's rightfully theirs, to maximize their money, to help them make the most of it. And so when you think and when you talk about your incumbents, I can totally get the you know, the Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, broke, you know, old time wirehouse brokerage firms. But what about the companies that you probably 10 years ago thought those were the good guys of the industry, like the no load yep. fund companies, the Fidelities, the Vanguards, the T-Row prices, as they bring on competition to your model? How do you see people navigating that? I mean, look, they've got the name advantage right there, right? Like, Oh, well, it's a big company. There's a 500-year-old schooner is their logo. That seems solid to me. (laughs) What is it that's different about what you're doing versus what these other guys are doing that is going to change that calculus in the mind of the consumer? In my onboarding presentation to every employee at at Betterment, I show a couple of company logos that inspired me to, to, to start this company. One is ING Direct. I love the simplicity of their model, the, uh, the clarity of their value proposition. We're just going to get you higher returns. And Vanguard is the other one because I love their low-cost model. I love the efficiency of it. Uh, the, 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 the values of the company seem very strong to me. And I thought if we could just put these two together, and I talk about that to every employee, these are companies that, that we look up to. Now, ING is no longer around, but, but Vanguard still is. We're talking the other day on the, on the, in the team about uh, Bogle, and I'm a big fan of... Uh, You're Jeff, a Bogle Jeff, head Jeff from Bogle. way back, of course, right? Of yeah. course, uh, and, and I've, we, we've met several times, we've talked. I, I think the world of what he's done for the average investor. We were talking about if everyone should have his poster, you know, a poster of him up on the wall. My view is they've done a lot of great things at Vanguard. 
but they're really good at making mutual funds. And yep. today, they're not keeping up. They're not actually doing everything that, that they should be doing for their investors. All they do, they're hiring all these CFPs. Right. And they're recommending Vanguard mutual funds over the phone. That's all they're doing. What they should be doing is maximizing the money of every client. And they're not doing that because that's not how they're set up. They're set up to sell you Vanguard mutual funds. They are a mutual fund company. And no matter what wrapper they put on it, that's all they do. And you are really positioning Betterment as an advice company. So I, I want to get into that for uh, a moment here because you also have human advisors. I've met some of them. There are real people in this company, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I've been to their offices. You do have a human touch, and you've just introduced some new services to Betterment. Why'd you do that? We've always wanted to provide advice in any way that our clients want to get it. People were telling us as they came to visit the site, hey, I love everything you're doing, but I just want to talk to someone about, you know, is this right for me? And I have some questions. I heard this so many times, and it was frustrating to me because I said, well, we've got CFPs. I mean, you've met, we've had them for mm -hmm. years, right? We've had great people on the team to be able to answer questions. But we wanted to productize that. We wanted to make the world aware of the fact that there are people here, too, and you can talk to them as much as you want. And so uh, we built packages for people who just want lots of advice. We built packages for people who want a little bit of advice. And we also have dedicated advisors who use our Betterment for Advisors platform. Yeah, so I want to ask you about that. You actually like the advisor network. There's a lot of actually pretty famous advisors who use the Betterment platform. Why did you do that? Advisors are great. And there is always going to be a place for them because people just like talking to people about their money, even if you use all of all of our algorithms. And um, many people just want somebody to look it over and make sure that they did the right things. Or what about if I want to call you up and say, hey, I just got a great job offer and uh, my salary is going to go down, but my bonus potential is going to go up. And that's a that's the kind of call when I was an advisor. That is like one of the more frequently asked phone calls, like job change. want to talk to you like you want someone who has some insight into who you are. So if I call Betterment, am I going to get the same person? Can I get the same person if I want? You can. You can get a dedicated get advisor who's always... I, so I still talk to clients all the time. I'm, I'll probably answer a dozen emails today. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and I love doing that. Uh, it's, it's, it's well, you're going to have to come back and do our show when we answer yes. um, listener questions. Oh, I'd love to do that. That'd be, That'd be awesome. so fun for me. So let's, let's shift gears for a second here, and let's talk about this fiduciary issue which you are quite passionate about. I mean, you wrote a big letter, and it was right after the election. Is that right? And mm -hmm. there was a full-page ad, and you basically went out there and said the fiduciary standard, the Department of Labor's rule, should be honored. And now we know that this administration is planning or trying to roll that back. First of all, were you surprised by that? The reason this is a big issue for us is that we believe every American has the right to unconflicted financial advice. I built a company around that idea that everyone should get fiduciary unconflicted advice to help them make the best possible decisions and maximize their money. Now, we believe that at our core. We believe it is our duty to help people make the most of their money and always do the right thing for them and always work for them. And when an issue like this comes along, no matter what happens in Washington, we are still going to do right by our customers. We're still going to work every day to maximize your money. This is exactly the kind of issue that we should stand for. 
because if not us, who else? This is what we're talking about, is that everyone should have unconflicted financial advice. That is what the deal is doing. And so we were involved with the Department of Labor in supporting this rule before it was finalized and helping to craft it so that it would be in the best interest of customers. Uh, we have uh, been involved with many agencies in Washington, the SEC, the CFPB, Congress, congressmen and women on both sides of the aisle. We are always advocating for customer best interest. And this is just one of the clearest examples of an opportunity where we can fight and stand up for customers. Do you want to join me in calling BS on the um, issue that this will only lead to fewer choices? Because Gary Cohn, uh, former Goldman Sachs president, he's saying fewer choices. Um, This is bad for middle class Americans. What's your response to that? The analogy that he used was the was healthy food versus fast food. And it was a hilarious analogy because he said, well, this is like taking all the unhealthy food off the table and only giving people the healthy options, which he said is a bad thing because it limits choice. That is not an accurate characterization of what the fiduciary rule does. In fact, all the choices are still there, the unhealthy food and the healthy food. But now you know how much the unhealthy food costs and you know how many calories are in it and you can make an informed decision. That is what the fiduciary rule is about. It is about transparency. It is about empowering consumers with full information. As it was before, people could sell you that unhealthy food and tell you it was really healthy. That's not the kind of environment that we want our children to grow up in where you, where you can't trust things. And, and, and people sort of take it for granted that, oh, yeah, well, of course you have to be skeptical of financial salespeople. They're always trying to sell you something. Imagine that we had that same paradigm in medicine. That's you exactly You go to a doctor right. and, and the doctor says to you, you should, you should have this drug. And maybe that doctor is getting paid for recommending you that drug. And every time they, they sell that drug, they get $500 in their pocket. Well, they're going to sell it to all of, their, all of their, their patients, whether it's good for those patients or not, of course. And that's an unacceptable in medicine. We have laws now for, for a long time that prohibit that type of activity. You can't get paid for recommending something that's not appropriate. In financial services, we have no such rule until the fiduciary rule. It is absolutely the right thing. And in fact, it should be extended beyond just retirement accounts. The SEC should pick it up and apply it to all accounts. If you're going to be providing advice, you have to provide good advice or at least disclose. If the doctor came to you and said, I get paid $500 every time I give you this drug, it's still an option for you, right? That's what the fiduciary rule does. It, it, It says all the options are out there, but you have to be clear about how you're getting paid. And if that rule gets repealed, you'd better ask your financial advisor how they're getting paid. And you'd better ask if they're always acting in your best interest. And, you know, um, so a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, number one, the the guy who runs the CFP board, Kevin Keller, was really very outspoken about this early on and also, you know, sort of working behind the scenes trying to help the, the rule being created out of DOL. And he got a lot of pushback from people who said this should have come out of the SEC. A lot of his a lot of CFPs are working in places where they don't. I mean, even though you're sort of you are a fiduciary, if you're a CFP, if your organization is not created in a way that makes that easy, sometimes you fall into bad habits. That's all I can say. The idea that the SEC didn't take that up, wasn't that sort of surprising after with Dodd-Frank? I am not a regulatory expert, but I'll give you. But you'll my, play one my, on TV. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just tell you what, what my perspective on it is. I think the SEC has a lot of really great people, well, well-meaning, and I think that their, uh, their purview is quite broad. 
they have a lot of responsibilities. They have to be accountable for the efficiency of markets and capital allocation. You know, there's probably a half dozen top-level priorities that that the, 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 the functioning of the, of the financial system, that kind of stuff is on the SEC's shoulders. Now, the Department of Labor, on the other hand, is fighting for American workers, fighting for American workers' retirements is pretty close to that. Right. And so it, it just felt easier for them to get this done than the SEC, who has all these different considerations. I will tell you a funny story that I think helps people understand that where you come from can cloud your opinion. So when Mary Shapiro was running the SEC, before she left, it was already announced that she was leaving, um, I was able to sit down and interview her. And it was an on-the-record interview, and she was really quite candid and said, hey, when I was running FINRA, which is a self-regulating organization. So FINRA basically is like your brokerage firm is part of FINRA. The industry itself sort of is a self-policing organization, okay? She said, I was running FINRA. I would hear from all the members, and I'd really buy into these arguments against fiduciary. She goes, it was so compelling. And they were saying, like, what am I going to do? I had this one case where this person needed this, and I wouldn't be able to do it under fiduciary, and this is about commission versus AUM versus this and that, uh, asset under management fee. And she was like, she said, I was really convinced. She goes, then I came to the SEC. And she goes, and you know what? I turned. I realized this is baloney. And so from my perspective, I get, Mark will tell you, Mark is the greatest producer in the world, as you know. Uh, we get emails all the time from brokers and advisors mm -hmm. who just kick my ass about coming out so hard around fiduciary because they say, I don't understand that I'm limiting choice. I'm doing this. I was a financial advisor. I was a fiduciary and I didn't have a problem working with middle class people. There was no issue. And I think the misconception out there of this takes away your choice. You're absolutely right. It doesn't take it away, but it informs you. Right. And by the way, what kind of profession is this where your motto is, we don't exactly put you first? <laughs> what is how is that the the way that you think is going to lead you? So let's get back to Betterment. So Betterment, you guys are held to the fiduciary standard, but it's self-imposed, and you are also registered as investment advisors, which means you are held to a fiduciary standard. Correct. So so it's self-imposed, but we registered from the beginning as an RIA, a registered investment advisor. And as such, we are held to the fiduciary standard. Uh, the SEC holds investment advisors to the fiduciary standard, but not brokers. And the idea of the DOL rule is to, well, bring everyone up to that fiduciary standard, at least in retirement accounts. The SEC should extend that to all accounts. Now that you, you know, we see this effort is afoot, this is going to happen probably, I'm just imagining, because all these knuckleheads are like, woohoo, little breathing room. But they already spent the money to comply with the rules. So what are, what are your competitors going to do? Do you think they're just going to stick to it and just be like, whew, I can lay off a few of the legal team because I don't have to worry about compliance as much? What's their position? What are you hearing? I'm hearing from a lot of people inside that it might be too late to roll this back, that uh, the, the big companies have already invested so much, and many of them have publicly talked about how much they've, they've invested in compliance with the rule, uh, that I, I think it'll be hard for them to, to go back. Some have, have come out and said, hey, we support a fiduciary standard. Now they're awfully quiet about it, and they're sort of regretting the, the fact that they came out to, to do that because they know that it'll impact their, their bottom line. Another thing Gary Cohn said, by the way, just to, I think, put, put it into, uh, to, to put some numbers around it, he said, this 
fiduciary rule implementation will cost the financial services industry $20 billion. Well, by the way, that same figure, $20 billion, is what the administration says. It'll be $20 billion of benefit to retirement well, savers. I mean, first it's a pure transfer it's from just the financial services industry to retirement savers. Because that's it's what such this, crap. I mean, yeah. that's the part that makes me so sick. Like, oh, I feel so bad because bank stocks have really been suffering since 2009, haven't they? I mean, these are the... Oh, my God, I'm really getting a little hot here. You're not getting hot. But I just want to remind everybody, uh, these are many of the institutions that took us off a freaking cliff, okay? Yes, there were a lot of participants. We all got there in different ways. But the institutions were not so hot at, like, kind of self-policing and managing their risk. And they have come back so strong. And since the election, the biggest leading sector of the entire S&P 500 is banking and financial services. Hmm, I wonder why. Because... All these regulations that cost them money to comply with these regulations might actually be relieved. And so why people think that that's an okay deal, like banks are losing all this money, but I'm not making it. Look, these are incredibly complicated issues, right? And I think sometimes we like to simplify complicated issues down, and and sometimes we oversimplify them into things like regulation is bad or regulation is good. It's not that simple. There is good regulation and there's bad regulation. The entire system, the entire financial system depends on regulation. Without the Securities Acts of the 1930s and 1940, we wouldn't have stock exchanges. We wouldn't have... Uh, mutual funds. We wouldn't have many of the th- or banks, right? Like all of that, all of this, all of these concepts that we take for granted depend upon regulation to, to function. Can you improve that functioning over time as technology changes, as society changes, as people live longer, as after the 401k is introduced and we start relying on uh, on, on savings to fund people's retirements rather than pensions the way that we used to? Of course you can improve regulation. The country is changing. Society is changing. Technology is changing. The world's changing. Regulation has to keep up and it has to iterate and improve. It's not about regulation versus not. It's about improving it. And this is an improvement to regulation. We have to be forward thinking as, as, a, as a people. We have to make things better. And we are fighting to make things better for everyday American savers and investors. I can. I got to end on that. Okay, <laughs> before we uh, finish up, so your best money decision was starting this company, which was in what year, by the way? Two thousand and nine. I, I got. We got our first office together. I mean, I've been thinking about this for for years before, but that's when we we really formed up. All right, you ready for the worst money or career mistake you have made? I'll let you pick either one: money or career mistake. When I was uh, just out of college and, uh, and I had a little bit of graduation money and I was investing it on my own, I bought Enron on the way <laughs> And <laughs> that's too good. That's like too good for me. That's right? fantastic. And and later, it, it's funny. I, I ran into Jeff Skilling uh, at a at a bar uh, in Las Vegas, and we had a long conversation about what had happened. An hour and a half, we talked. Really? Yeah. Just I just I didn't know him. I just walked up, and he you know he bought me a drink kind of randomly. He was there alone. We talked about it for the longest time, and it was it was one of those kind of formative lessons for me. I realized. That he had really lost touch with what was right for people. He was mm. so in his own world in the company. And one of the lesson I took away is you've got to talk to your customers. You've got to talk to people outside of the company to keep in touch with the impact that you're having. John Stein, CEO, co-founder of Betterment, sponsor of this program. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to be here. Thanks, Jill. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. 
Okay, now for the best part of the show, the better off question of the week. This is when you get to ask me questions about your financial life. If you would like to give us a holler, just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. So we've got Aaron on the line. He's calling from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Aaron, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Jill, doing great. How are you doing? Fantastic. Tell me what's on your mind, how I can help you out. Um, so I've recently graduated from college, uh, just past this past December. Great. Um, I've landed a job right out of school. So I'm, I'm currently making more money than I've ever had <laughs> before. I so love it. It's a good, a good problem to have, I guess. Yep. Um, and it's a company with really great benefits. And um, I just kind of want to see uh, what your thought was on, on where I should be putting my money first. Okay. What I should be saving for. All right, so let's start with this. So you're in your 20s, right? Okay. Do you have any debt, any uh, student loans? I have no student loans, thanks to uh, the scholarships and mom and dad. Fantastic. And yes, um, no credit card or auto loans either? I have an auto loan. Okay. And yeah. how much is outstanding on that auto loan? Um, it is, so it's brand new, so I'm one month into 60 months, I believe. Okay. So uh, like three forty nine a month. Okay. And uh, do you know what the interest rate is on the auto loan? It's pretty good. So I, my dad was nice and uh, co-signed it for me, 3.4%. Kind of loving your dad and your mom right now. Uh, yeah, he is. <laughs> this is good stuff. Uh, okay. How much are you making, Aaron? I'm making 52 a year. Fantastic. And are you uh, renting your own place or are you living with mom and dad? I am renting. Okay, great. You said you got good benefits at the company. Is there a 401k that's offered through them? Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. And are you contributing to that? I am, yeah. I'm doing a 6%. Okay. And there's also a 6% employer match. Great. So that's terrific. And what about just some safe money in the bank? Wh- what's going on there? I'm on track to save about $1,000 a month. Okay. So look, when you start out, this is what my, I call it like the big three. And for, uh, by the way, anyone listening, whether it's you, yourself, your kid, your niece, your nephew, everyone has to think about this same big three in my mind. Number one is you got to try to pay off any nasty consumer debt. So I'm mean like double digit percentage credit cards or big fat bad auto loans. This is not a terrible auto loan, so I'm not that concerned. Um, and, and and that's really your number one priority. And of course, when you've got student loans, you're going to have to pay those down as well. The second thing is, I think, an emergency reserve fund of some sort. And how do you figure out how much money you actually need to put away in that emergency reserve fund? I would say it's anywhere between six and 12 months of whatever your living expenses are. So that requires you to actually figure out what your living expenses are. But, you know, like Aaron, it's kind of probably easy for you because you don't have that many expenses. Then it is put money away for retirement. And so you're doing a little bit at the same time, which is all good. I like the 6% in the 401k. Um, I think that in the next few months, you're going to have your emergency reserve fund pretty well set because I I can't, do you know what your monthly expenses are right now? Probably around 1,500. 1,500 a month. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that's pretty good. So in the next six months, you're going to have that saved up. Once you get to that point, the next choice is, okay, what else do I need to do? So there's a couple of choices. Number one is you can put more money into your 401k. But I think in your case, I, I have a sense that you're so young and your career is just taking off that maybe what you might want to do is open up a Roth IRA 
And it, once you get that emergency reserve fund saved up, once you got that set, then you take the money you were putting towards the emergency reserve and you open up a Roth IRA. And the the Roth is kind of cool. It's a little different than your 401k. You probably know the difference, but I'm just going to say for everyone else's benefit that, you know, 401k, you get a deduction from your taxes now. So if you're going to make 50 grand and you put 10% in, you're not taxed on 50 grand, you're taxed on 50 grand minus the 5,000 you put in your retirement plan. So that's why it shrinks your tax bill currently. With a Roth, you take an after-tax dollar, right? You make money, and then you get taxed on it, and then you put it into a retirement account. But that account is really cool because it grows without taxation for as long as you invest inside of it. And then once you take the money out down the road at 59 and a half, there's no tax due. So with your 401k, you got to pull the money out and pay tax on it. Roth, you don't. So I think that that might be where I where I would go with sort of my my next level of investing. Here's another question for you, Aaron. How are you investing the money inside of the 401k right now? Inside the 401k, I honestly have not really kept a close eye on it. All right. I love that you're honest with me. I love that's That's it's a beautiful thing. We're getting real here. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go go after we get off the phone, I want you to go check the statement and I want you to send me an email and tell me what it is invested in. And then we can figure out whether it's in something that needs, you know, maybe you need to be more aggressive, maybe you need to be less aggressive. I don't know. But I want you to take a look at that because, look, this is your money, okay? And, you know, you're not alone. And there's a lot of people listening here who don't want to, like, micromanage their entire financial lives. They just want to, like, they're making good money. They're putting money away. That's great. I just want you to be able to feel comfortable and in control of the money you are putting away. And the first step is pull that statement out. Look at what it's invested in. Shoot me an email. Let me know. And then we can decide whether that's the right investment option for you or whether you need to take more risk, less risk. I mean, you're really young. So... Risk shouldn't be something you're really terrified of, but I just want you to feel more in control of it, and that way you'll feel more, I think, just uh, generally feel better about your own financial condition. But, uh, I mean, it sounds to me like you're doing all the right things so far, and uh, we just got to get some of that money to work for you when it gets freed up. That's it. Appreciate it, Jill. All right. Thanks so much for calling. Take care, Aaron. Okay, that's another episode of Better Off. Thanks so much to Betterman CEO John Stein for joining us today. And thank you for all those great questions. Don't forget, there's a new episode of the Better Off podcast every Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag Better Off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. <laughs>